0: May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Last year, I was involved in helping a member of the congregation who shall go nameless. Some of you might know who who I'm referring to, but I'm not going to say. Helping them with running a party. Um, A party which they'd invited various different guests, or at least the husband had invited quite a few guests. The wife thought the number of guests invited was about half the number who actually turned up. Thankfully, there was enough food to go round in the end. In fact, there was an excess left over. Um, There were an excess of desserts, people were bringing home takeaways. But there did come a point in the evening where the husband was dreading the doorbell ringing again in case it was another guest that he'd forgotten about and forgotten to inform his wife. The passage from chapter 6 of John's Gospel isn't quite like that. In terms of sharing food and having enough food to go around, this is on a different scale altogether. It is also somewhat unique as being one of the few miracles that is reported in all four of the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all describe the feeding of the multitude, which is not just 5,000 people on their own. Matthew, in his Gospel in chapter 14, verse 21, makes it very clear that there were women and children beside. 5,000 is only the number of men the number might be conservatively estimated as being about four times that number, maybe about 20,000, if you've an equal number of women and maybe an equal gender balance of children as well. We don't know for sure, but 5,000 is absolutely the lower limit. 5,000 plus also gives you an extraordinary number of witnesses to an event. The only other event described by all the other gospel writers uniquely would be the crucifixion and the resurrection. So, this stands alongside the crucifixion and the resurrection as being something that all of the gospel writers considered sufficiently important to include in their accounts of Jesus' life, ministry, and teaching. Some people, some commentators, have tried to argue away that Maybe there was a, an amount of sharing that was prompted by Jesus. Maybe this is a case where a lot of people had food to spare, but they just needed to be provoked somehow into sharing. William Barclay, for example, tends to lean towards this view in his commentary on John's, uh, the Gospel according to John. However, I don't think this really adds up when you look at the account. Consider, for example, the number of leftovers – and consider how everybody has their fill. Consider how, they have to, how the disciples have to go searching for food. None of this really adds up with people being prompted into sharing, having an excess left over to this extent, to this number of people. This is something extraordinary. The setting for this is given very clearly in all of the Gospels. It's on the north shores of the Sea of Galilee. John, writing later than a lot of the other Gospel writers, describes how this is also the Sea of Tiberias in a footnote, referring to Tiberias, a city which was on the northern shores of Galilee. Luke, in his Gospel, identifies it with Bethsaida, a fishing town, Beth house of Seda fishing, or people who are fishing. And it's interesting how in John's gospel, John's account, the two particular disciples who go off looking for food are local guys. Philip is described in chapter one of John's account as being from Bethsaida, as are Andrew and Simon Peter, his brother. So, Jesus sends the local guys off to try and find some food. He prompts them, he prompts them to go searching. Where are we to find bread? He asks the question, so that all these people may eat. Now, some of the other gospel writers have the disciples urging Jesus to send the people away so that they might be able to go and find food. They've gone to what is described as a fairly remote place. You might consider it somewhat remiss to go somewhere far off without having any food. Presumably, some food was carried, but was consumed along the way. The setting for this is provided by Matthew and Mark in their Gospels as occurring after the death of John the Baptist, and after this has been reported to Jesus. In Matthew chapter 14, we have the account of John the Baptist's death, and likewise in Mark chapter 6. Mark also adds the detail that Jesus has urged the disciples to come away and rest. And presumably, after hearing the news of John the Baptist's beheading, Jesus needs some time and space to grieve himself. But despite having a need for some time and space, they are followed by a crowd, followed by a massive number. Mark describes how Jesus has compassion on the people. Matthew describes how he's healing a number of them as well. And Mark also describes how Jesus has been teaching them. So, a massive crowd has assembled of 5,000 plus. And Jesus asks Philip, where are we to find bread so that these people might eat? Now, John makes it very clear that this is not something that Jesus doesn't know the answer to. He's testing Philip. Philip, you're a local. You know where food and drink could be found in this area. You're from this area. You're from Bethsaida. But Philip just answers almost incredulously, thinking of the number of… the actual cost it would take to find enough food for all of these people. 200 denarii. 200 denarii. Two, that a denarius was a day's wage at the time. In the parable of the laborers in the vineyard in Matthew's gospel, this is clear that it's a day's wage. So, if you multiply that up, a day's wage by 200 denarii, we're talking about over seven months' wages worth to feed all of these people. That's a lot of money, not something that's easily going to be found. Not something that's going to be easily found particularly in a a remote place, But Andrew takes a little bit more initiative. He goes searching around, and Andrew is often found at the fringes a little bit, looking around with others in a way that Philip also is throughout throughout the gospel according to John. Andrew manages to find one boy who has some food but surely not enough to distribute among this vast number of people. You could well understand how the disciples would think, how on earth could we possibly feed this number? And yet somehow, with a very small starting material of five loaves and two broiled or somehow pickled fish, five barley loaves, this vast crowd is fed. From a scientific perspective, this might seem to utterly contradict one of the basic principles Of physics and chemistry, the law of conservation of mass, the law of conservation of matter. And the disciples wouldn't have been naive about this. This was firmly demonstrated in experiments in hermetically sealed glass vessels by people like Antoine Lavoisier, but it was an established principle long, long before. The disciples wouldn't have been naive about this. Going back to the fourth century and the third century, Greek philosophers such as Empedocles and Epicurus described how nothing can come from nothing. So, it isn't something that you have to require enlightenment thinking to realize that this isn't something that happens normally. And yet, because we have the detail of a particular time and a particular place, and so many different witnesses at this time, there's no hint of people trying to contradict this account at the time. Five thousand plus people in this particular location, it would be easy for people to check up and refute if they they thought, oh, this didn't happen. We have no record of any dispute of that. All of the Gospel writers make it very clear that there were numerous witnesses and leftovers as well, which could have been used potentially as evidence, although they might have been consumed rather quickly. There was a particular hymn we used to sing in the primary school I went to, which described all that I have, all that I have. I will give Jesus all that I have. Two little fishes, five loaves of bread. Five thousand people by Jesus was fed, were fed. And this all happened as one little lad gladly gave Jesus all that he had, all that I have, all that I have. So generosity is not sufficient in sharing to explain how such a huge number of people were fed and how there were so many leftovers and how people had to go searching for food and how everyone was eating so much that they were satisfied that they ate their fill. The generosity of people or willingness to share when they've been provoked to be generous isn't sufficient, but nevertheless it does start with an act of generosity, with an act of willingness to give to Jesus, what certainly one little boy had all that he had. Sometimes we tend to focus just on the miraculous element, the stupendous, and fail to see the Miracle of the ordinary as well, of God's ongoing generosity. We don't see miracles on this scale happening regularly nowadays. There may be situations where we often wish that that would happen, but it's not something that we often see. If we turn back to the Psalm that we looked at earlier, Psalm 145, it describes God's generosity, but not necessarily in terms of something like the feeding of the 5,000. It talks about God's character. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And that is expressed in verse 15 of how the eyes of all look to God. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. This is describing not just our own species, human beings, but describing God's generosity and providence to all of creation. This is something that we can easily sometimes take for granted. I have to confess myself that often when I sit down to eat, I don't always remember to to thank God for the food before me. But that is something that Jesus explicitly does here. Before he distributes the food, what is the first thing he does? He gets the people to sit down, there's grass in the place. And then in verse 11, he took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. The other gospel writers describe how Jesus looked towards heaven. We don't know, and, and gave a blessing. He blessed God at the time. Now, we don't know exactly the words he, he might have used at the time. One could speculate that it might have been words similar to those that are often used in the Passover Cedar, where people will Pray to God. Blessed are you, Lord God, King of the Universe, Creator of many good kinds of food, or Creator of food of bread that comes forth from the earth. Baruch Atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech alam, Boreh Minem or Baruch and Adonai Eloheinu Melech alam, Blessed are you, Lord God, King of the Universe. Hamotzi, bread, lechem uh, min. How God will bring forth bread from the earth and to bring, singing blessing and acknowledgement that God ultimately provides. So, when he is given thanks, it's only then that Jesus distributes and then urges the disciples to gather up all that is left. John Calvin, in commenting on this passage, describes how, in some ways, there's a little bit of a paradox because Jesus, when he is being tempted by the devil, quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, man cannot live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Yet here he's very much satisfying people's physical needs, their physical desires for food. John, in his account, however, makes it clear there's a connection between The feeding of the 5,000 and subsequent teaching that occurs afterwards, the discourse on the bread of life, where Jesus shocks his listeners by describing how they must eat his flesh, munch his flesh, and drink his blood in order to have life in them. Even before this, we have a, a section in between where he walks on water And he says to the disciples something that in many translations is, it is I, do not be afraid, when he approaches them walking on the water and calms the the, the storm that's happening. But could also be translated as another I am saying, it is I, I am, ego amy, do not be afraid. There's a sense in which all the teaching that follows here is identifying Jesus very clearly as God, but also he who is able to produce matter seemingly out of thin air or with very little starting material must surely also be somebody who is God. Now, it's not the only case of multiplication of food from very little starting material that we have in the Bible. Elijah and Elisha performed similar miracles. If we look at 1 Kings chapter 17, for example, we have Elijah with the Shunammite woman where with only a very small amount of oil in a jug and flour in a jar, he manages to feed a whole family throughout the course of a drought. That's a miracle performed by Elijah. And then Elisha, similarly, in Second Kings, we get a description of how a, wo- some, a woman is in debt, and Elisha is able to, with just a small amount of oil in a jar pouring it into other jars and vessels, is able to produce enough that she's able to clear her debts. Chapter 4 of Second Kings. But the scale on which Jesus is able to multiply food is far beyond that. This is, this is a phenomenal scale, and, and in a very short period of time. In many respects to me, this is identifying Jesus clearly with God, a creator who is able to produce matter out of nothing, creatio ex nihilo, clearly identifying him as a creator. But there is a sense of which feeding people is also important in order for them to be able to listen and to think and to absorb Jesus' teaching. Not all of them do so. William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, described how People cannot really receive an understanding of God's love if they're focusing on the fact that they've got empty bellies at the time. Jesus satisfies their physical needs and uses it not just so that they are able to think, but also as an object lesson in identifying who He is, identifying Him clearly as the Creator. The extent, though, to which generosity is required to initiate it does raise questions regarding the inequalities we have in our world. Yes, God provides. But when God is described in Psalm 145 as upholding those who are falling and raising all who are bowed down, it doesn't say that God always does that directly. He could very easily do it indirectly through the means of other people. When I was in Uganda, and I'm not going to comment too much on this because we will have a feedback service later, I had the privilege of meeting the mother of the little boy I'd sponsored. But even before I went out to Uganda, she'd given me a present to the Stockman family, to Steve and Janice, to bring back last year. In fact, a number of carvings. This was one of them. And when I came back and looked at this, I was reflecting on the balance we sometimes have between need and greed in our world. While we were in Uganda, all of us on the team had more than enough food to eat, and we were blessed with really good food. People who catered for us at the school where we were working in Unieleku. But also, one of the things that I learned about afterwards, not initially at the time, which rather shocked me, was the last day that we were there, we had a big party with all of the teachers, a big, a big banquet, and there was food left over on various plates, and a few people in the team told me afterwards how they'd noticed the children in the school just eating the scraps that were left on the plates, chewing on bones and things like this. That's something that I hadn't actually noticed at the time, but something that inevitably gives you a sense of guilt, certainly gave me a sense of guilt about how we were able to go back for seconds, and yet there were children there who, yes, they did get food at the school, but they were obviously still so hungry that they were chewing on chicken bones that some of us had left discarded on plates. So, as I looked at this carving, I was thinking about the balance between need and greed. I had a friend in Liverpool, David Alton, who would often quote in some of his speeches in Parliament Mahatma Gandhi's phrase that there is enough in the world for the world's need, but not enough for the world's greed. We clearly live in a world of imbalance. God does provide generously to us. James, in his epistle, describes in chapter 1, verse 17, how every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who doesn't change like shifting shadows. God continues to be generous, but what do we do with what he gives us? One little boy gave all that he had. Two fish, five loaves of bread... And with it, Jesus was able to feed an entire multitude. Psalm 145 describes the greatness of God in terms that are almost ineffable, except that would be a contradiction in terms, because to say that God is ineffable is to make a statement about God. But it describes how God's greatness cannot be measured in any way. And when we were away in Uganda, one of the things I was reflecting on at the time was how sometimes God's greatness is not just in the astronomical, but also reflected in the very little things. And sometimes how very little things that we do can have a tremendous impact on others. Certainly, I've experienced that myself how a simple thing, like a child in a playground holding up a sign saying, We love you would just overwhelm me emotionally and I wasn't the only one. Little things can make a big difference. God's greatness can sometimes be seen in the little things which can produce results which we can barely anticipate. Five loaves and a few fish could feed between 5,000, 2,000, maybe more, 20,000, maybe more, maybe 25,000 people We don't know the upper limit of how many people were fed, but it was a phenomenal number. We cannot fully explain what happened here. We cannot fully explain it in scientific terms. It it defies that. We cannot explain it away easily either. I think for me, this simply points to God's clear creative power working through Jesus, but also a way in which he involves us, involves his disciples, involves a young boy in the crowd. In some ways, the setting for this is also rather special. John makes it very clear that this event occurred at the Passover. In fact, there are probably three Passovers described in, John's, uh, in the gospel according to John. One is at the wedding in Cana, and then also the Passover that occurs during Holy Week, and this is another Passover event. A Passover, people would also be thinking about the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and it wouldn't be unsurprising then for this particular setting to be rather opposite for a teaching, a discourse on Jesus being the bread of life, and also for feeding so many people. The link with the events of the Exodus is also clear when the people proclaim Jesus at the very end. They want to proclaim Him as a prophet. Now, Moses described in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, how a prophet like him would come afterwards, how there would be yet another prophet The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. In John chapter 6, they seem to think that Jesus is this prophet, but do they really listen to him? As you read on in chapter 6, where Jesus is now preaching in the synagogue in Capernaum about being the bread of life, very few seem able to take this teaching on board. But he describes himself as being the bread of life, and also, in many ways, this seems to be a fulfillment of Moses' prophecy. Jesus is far, far greater a prophet than than Moses, and far more than a prophet, and yet somehow they want to proclaim him as a king, to hijack him, and meld him into their own purposes. So Jesus slips away going back up the hillside to pray. The other gospel writers describe how he sends the disciples away in the boat at this point as well. Do we sometimes try and meld Jesus to our purposes rather than really listening to what he's saying? I think sometimes we can all be guilty of this. They want to make him a king in their own terms, Yes, Jesus is a king. He is Lord of the whole universe. But not a king who people can make by force to try and suit their own needs, suit their own desires. The feast that Jesus provides in some ways might also be connected to Isaiah's promise in Isaiah chapter 25, Isaiah promises a great feast. The feeding of the 5,000 isn't entirely a fulfillment of this, but it may be a foreshadowing of it. The feast takes place on the northern shores of Galilee. The mountain referred to could well be the Golan Heights, the hill that Jesus goes up against. In Isaiah chapter 25, Isaiah says the following, on this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that has spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. This is referring in its ultimate fulfillment to a future event. The food that Jesus shared was far more plain, everyday food, broiled fish or preserved fish, and barley loaves, not exactly rich fare. But nevertheless, on a mountain, he provided food for all. And he who is able to create out of nothing is far easier to identify with he who is able to swallow up death forever. In this passage, we find a mix of challenge and also hope for the future. Jesus, who is able to feed 5,000 is clearly a God who is able to create out of nothing, who is the creator God that we worship. Unfortunately, the people at the time, although they recognize him as a prophet, don't yet make the step of recognizing his true identity as God. There is the challenge, recognizing him truly as Lord. But also the challenge of being able to participate In Jesus acts in our own little way. One boy was able to share. Yes, only Jesus is able to perform the multiplication, but he involves other people to begin sharing with him. And so when God is generous with us, how do we help to redress the balance between need and greed and worship him in our service to others as well? When Jesus prays in the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread, it's a plural. It's not give me this day my daily bread. We need to pray with each other in mind and the wider world. Let us pray. Loving Father, we thank you for the account we have this morning of Jesus feeding at least 5,000 people. In many ways, the events described are mind-blowing, and yet you perform great things with so little that we can contribute as well. Help us, challenge us, enable us by your Spirit to be generous with what you give us. Forgive us for those times when we have thought more about our own stomachs than about other people who might be going without, either in our own city or further afield in the world. Help us as we seek our daily bread to think not just for ourselves but also to think of all our brothers and sisters throughout the world. Help us to better see the truth of who you are as Lord, as Creator, and not simply to try and seek our own desires. to seek the greater good of all your people we ask these things in Jesus name who taught us when we pray to say our father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us this day our daily bread